hardheads, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are in this wonderful world of ours. Welcome to the Hardheaded Sports Podcast, episode number 47, hosted by me, Nick Ryan. Today's episode, as have the past couple episodes, they've been recorded over the course of a couple of days to a week, as the NBA playoffs continues to be an unpredictable mess. We saw that with... A couple of games this week, not only the end of the Utah Jazz LA Clippers series, which we talk about the first half of that series in this episode. Today, we'll talk about that a little bit more in subsequent episodes. I'll try to get that out on a quick turnaround, but also Kevin Durant going into an impossible game five situation, playing with a hobbled James Harden and no Kyrie Irving and playing the best game of his career. The NBA playoffs is just so unpredictable, and I think that if I just you know, put out more episodes talking about, you know, takes before games like that would happen. It would just be relatively unproductive. So again, that's why these episodes have been recorded over the last couple of days and why these episodes of the podcast have been coming out. So I don't necessarily want to say inconsistently, but the release of these episodes have been so spread out. So we're also going to talk about the Kemba Walker trade today. We're going to talk about the new sticky stuff ban, the ban of spider tack in Major League Baseball and whether it is actually getting guys hurt or not. Obviously, the first casualty of this new rule change was Tyler Glasnow of the Tampa Bay Rays. So does he have a case? We'll talk about that a little bit today. I talked with a friend of mine who was in the Mets farm system for a couple of years uh, as a pitcher. So I asked him for his opinion on that and his response was a little bit interesting. So uh, I'm interested to see and have you guys hear what he had to say as well. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. So I was fully prepared to start the show today talking about how the Milwaukee Bucks took game five from the Brooklyn Nets. They had won three straight games and heading back to Milwaukee with the Nets on the brink of elimination that the Milwaukee Bucks were in a great position to close out the series in game six and the Nets were in serious trouble considering that Harden is not 100%, Kyrie is not 100%, and Kevin Durant cannot carry the load all by himself. I was completely ready to make that take. I had my notes half written and I was so confident that that is what I would be sitting here telling you all this morning is that it's always been about health for the Nets. And if they're not healthy, they're not going to win. And if you ha- you need at least two out of the three of the superstars in order to get out of the East, and you definitely need two out of the three to be able to win a championship at the very least. Ideally, you want all three right, but it's always been a situation of health for the Nets. If they're healthy, they're good. If they're not, they're beatable. And I was fully expecting, as I said, the Bucks to win last night against the Nets and push the Nets to the brink of elimination after starting off uh, with a two-game series lead. And <laughs> then comes Kevin Durant. And this is why talking about the NBA playoffs consistently, and this is why making takes on the NBA playoffs is so incredibly difficult because basketball is a sport, as I've said multiple times on the show, is such a volatile sport when it comes to momentum. Momentum can change constantly back and forth throughout not only one game, but throughout an entire series. And it's incredibly difficult to call sometimes because anything can happen. Sometimes everything goes pretty according to chalk, and sometimes the extraordinary happens. And Kevin Durant was extraordinary last night. And the performance that Kevin Durant gave the Brooklyn Nets in a situation in which nobody had any idea, nobody had any idea, if they told you that they did have an idea, they were lying, 
Nobody had any idea what this game would look like for the Brooklyn Nets, considering that Kevin Durant has not played by himself for many games at all. I, I can't even tell you if he played by himself without the uh, rest of the big three once this season. Not only is he playing by himself, the lone superstar, but has he had enough games with this roster to be able to produce the type of win that the Nets sorely needed last night? Kevin Durant just had his best career performance last night. And I'm not talking best performance and judging best performance on how many points Kevin Durant scored because he scored more. I'm not talking about how defensively or offensively efficient he was. He was I'm not talking about how many assists and, and rebounds he got, although a, a 49-point triple-double is nothing to scoff at. Kevin Durant had his best performance of his career last night due to the stakes of the game and what it meant for this Brooklyn Nets team to be able to win that game and not go to Milwaukee down 3-2, but to also play every single minute of that basketball game. He did not take one single break, ladies and gentlemen. He played every single minute of that basketball game. One year, one and a, maybe a year and a half to two years after coming off a catastrophic Achilles tendon tear injury in which most players never come back the same from that injury. You telling me that Kevin Durant dropped a 49 triple double to deliver his team by himself to a 3-2 series lead. This was Kevin Durant's best game of his career. And if you're looking for an argument as to who the best player in the NBA is right now, you're taking a look at that performance from Kevin Durant, and you have a serious argument behind you as to Kevin Durant being the best player in the NBA. And granted, it's not that Kevin Durant did it alone because Jeff Green had a tremendous game, seven of, I think seven from eight from three-point range, had 25 points. But if there was any doubt as to how much Kevin Durant carried the Brooklyn Nets last night, Joe Harris, 2 from 11 from the field. James Harden pushing himself through the pain to be medically cleared to be playing to be playing in this game. 0 from 8 from three-pointer, 5 points, shot 1 for 10 for the game. James Harden. Bruce Brown, 1 for 5 as well, the other starter. Blake Griffin shot 7 from 11, which was a nice surprise, but other than Jeff Green, realistically speaking, this Brooklyn Nets team was entirely Kevin Durant. And sure, it also helps that <laughs> Milwaukee didn't have the best shooting night as well. Chris Middleton struggled again. Drew Holiday struggled a little bit again. Giannis played fine. He had, you know, 30 points, which has become expected of Giannis in the playoffs. But as I said, as I said last week when talking about Giannis and how James Harden was right about Giannis, when it comes down to it, Giannis is going to drive the paint. He's going to get a lot of basket. He's going to get a lot of points around the rim. But when you need him to create his own shot to get a bucket or to hit clutch free throws, he cannot do it. What happened last night towards the, the stretch of the game? He missed a, a fadeaway jump shot that was a bad jump shot to take for Giannis, and he missed two clutch free throws. That would have definitely helped the Milwaukee Bucks stay closer and give them a better chance to win the game. But I don't want the narrative to be that the Milwaukee Bucks blew the game. I want the narrative to be Kevin Durant won the game because that's what happened. We just saw Kevin Durant's best performance as an NBA superstar, as an NBA player. 
And again, it's not because of how many points he had. It's not because he had a triple-double. And it's not because, you know, he in some way has not had better games in terms of, you know, stat lines. It's because of the odds that he was against. It was because of the fact that he exited the game as a Golden State Warrior two and a half years ago or something at this point with a horrible Achilles tendon tear, not knowing if Kevin Durant would ever be the same. To fast forwarding to last night where he played every single minute of that basketball game with a team that he's only been playing with consistently for a couple months. And he not only overcomes that that trepidation or he overcomes the moment, but he carries his team who shot absolutely horrendous from the field on his back. We just saw Kevin Durant's best performance as an NBA superstar. And again, if you want to use the argument, if you want to pick one game to argue that Kevin Durant is the best basketball player in the world right now, you've got a seriously good argument on your hands if you choose last night. So the series goes back to Milwaukee for game six. James Harden is more than likely going to be feeling a little bit better. Like I started off this segment with, I was so prepared to say that the Bucks were going to win game five and I'd be talking about how in trouble the Nets were. I don't want to make the same mistake preemptively and say, oh, the Nets are absolutely going to win game six now on the road with some injuries. But if you don't think that the Milwaukee Bucks are a little bit mentally fatigued after the game that they lost last night, a game in which even with you know Harden coming back and playing and being a, a late game addition like that, there are very little excuses that you can make for the Milwaukee Bucks for losing that game. And the only caveat being that Kevin Durant had his best game as a professional. That's all you can say. I think that this series is going to go seven games. I think we're going to see a game seven in Brooklyn. And I think that at the end of it, because of this performance that Kevin Durant had, that we are going to see the Nets advancing to the Eastern Conference Finals. The Los Angeles Clippers have got to be the weirdest team in the NBA. Consistently, year in and year out, the Los Angeles Clippers, as long as they have been relevant, have tended to be the weirdest NBA team to step on a basketball court. And I'm not talking about their ownership, although Steve Ballmer is is a pretty, you know, charismatic individual. Not talking about the player personality because Kawhi is about as interesting as a cold cup of coffee. Not talking about the city that they're playing in because Los Angeles is a fantastic city. It's not like Portland where Portland has a reputation of being a kooky, weird city. The Clippers are a weird team consistently because of the product that they put on the basketball court. Whether it was with the old big three with DeAndre Jordan and Chris Paul and Blake Griffin, where that team you felt like was unstoppable at times, but chemistry issues and fighting within each other just allowed that team to crumble out of nowhere. And then you fast forward and you have these Kawhi Leonard, Paul George-led Clipper teams in which last year around this time when they were getting bounced from the playoffs in the second round, uh, in a year in which they were favorite to go to the finals or at least the Western Conference finals, everybody was saying, I wonder what this team would look like if Kawhi Leonard and Paul George were actually playing well. What would the potential of this team be? 
if we actually saw Kawhi Leonard and Paul George play to the best of their ability as a duo and deliver this Clipper team clutch wins when they needed to, advance them as far as they could in the playoffs. That's what the the narrative and that's what everybody was saying last year. So you fast forward to this year, right? Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are healthy. They go down 0-2 to the Mavericks and you say, oh boy, here we go again. And then somehow, some way, you know, I, I, I made the argument saying, hey, you know, maybe the Clippers are a team that need to get punched in the face first. Maybe they need to taste their own blood in their mouth, you know, get pushed back against the locker by the bully in order to feel something enough to activate the go meter and say, okay, now it's time to play championship level basketball. Let's fight back. Let's get the gears going and let's go and win this series. You know, that's, that's what I thought, you know, going into the Mavericks series after they went down 0-2 to the Mavericks. And they ended up winning that series in seven games. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George played fantastic basketball. Kawhi Leonard specifically played fantastic basketball. He looked like 2018 Kawhi. He looked like the 2018 Kawhi with the Toronto Raptors. That even though the Toronto Raptors had a fantastic, incredibly well-built team, Kawhi Leonard was the snake's head. He was incredibly efficient when it came down to it. And he not only delivered the Raptors past the 76ers, but he delivered them past the Bucks as well. Extremely efficient Kawhi in that Maverick series on the back half. Absolutely reaffirming his status as being one of the more clutch, get you a bucket or get you a defensive stop type players in the NBA. And then, you know, you go down 0-2 to the Jazz and... Deja Vu just keeps reckoning with this team in that way. It's such a weird team because you think, okay, Kawhi and Paul George are playing well. Clearly, the Clippers should be winning games and and not necessarily blowing teams outright. But they should be playing if they're playing well enough like this, and the the numbers speak for themselves. And they're they're shooting the ball efficiently. Sure, you're allowed to have a bad night. Every NBA player has a bad night. Hell, every NBA player is only supposed to really hit realistically hit about fifty percent of their shots, right? Kawhi Leonard and Paul George can afford to have a bad night, but overall, you can say that they have been playing well. So why are the Clippers continuously going down 0-2 to not only the Mavericks but the Jazz? And having to climb their way back into the series. And I know already already said, you know, back to my original point on, on the take on my Clippers a couple of weeks ago saying, hey, maybe they need to taste their own blood to get going. But again, it all goes back to what everybody was saying last season. Everybody's saying, oh, if Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are playing well, this Clippers team could have an incredible potential and nearly be unstoppable. Well, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are playing extremely well, and the Clippers, you have no idea what team you're going to get on a given night. And it feels like Kawhi Leonard has to play nearly perfect basketball and shoot an incredibly efficient percentage in order for his team to have any chance of winning. And I don't know if that's just because of the inconsistent sporadic play by the supporting cast like uh, Marcus Morris and Reggie Jackson and uh, Rajon Rondo, although Rajon Rondo is, is a fantastic rotational piece at the point guard position. This Clipper team just continues to be extremely, extremely weird. And it, it, it's, it's kind of hard to comprehend, especially now with Kawhi Leonard being ruled out for game five, potentially an ACL injury right now. It's just listed as a vague knee injury, but he is definitely going to be out for game five. Then the Clippers are in some trouble and going into this Utah jazz series. I think everybody was on the, of a majority opinion that's saying, okay, you might've been able to get away going down. Oh, two 
to the Dallas Mavericks. But you you probably won't be able to get away going down 0-2 to a Utah Jazz team that not only is much more efficient shooting the three-pointer, but is a much more defensive efficient team. They go down 0-2, and this weird Clippers team where, <laughs> again, everybody's saying, hey, look, the Jazz are a better team. They're de- better defensively. They're better at shooting the basketball. Here come the Clippers again, tying the series 2-2 after going down 0-2. And statistically speaking, in the history of the NBA, of the NBA teams that go down 0-2 don't normally do too well in this series. The Clippers continue to be a weird team. And now that Kawhi Leonard is ruled out for Game 5, I don't know if Paul George can carry the ship by himself. I would imagine that he can't. But if... This weird Clippers team, this weird Clippers franchise can somehow, some way, bring out a win in Game 5 and put the Utah Jazz on the brink of elimination, I would be utterly shocked. But hey, this is a weird Clippers team, and anything can happen. So last month on the Hard-Headed Sports Podcast, we talked about the unprecedented amount of no-hitters being thrown in baseball. Uh, The record for most no-hitters thrown in a season was eight, and at that point, the the league had already reached six. So going at a rapid pace, we talked about the no-hitter, whether it was losing its shine, because traditionally, you know, the no-hitter was something that a pitcher would earmark in his career, saying, wow, that was a major milestone. I threw a no-hitter, which was incredibly difficult or perceived to be incredibly difficult but with the new baseball and the enhanced use of substances by pitchers to get better grips on the ball you know it became a question of whether or not all this dominant pitching was good for baseball especially because offense is more often than not what puts butts in seats offense and and home run hitting that's what more often than not is the most entertaining part of baseball for a lot of casual fans So the question, you know, I was always asking, and the question that I posed was, was this good for baseball in the end? And baseball ended up producing an answer saying, no, we don't like the spider tack. We don't like um, sunscreen and Rosen. We don't don't, don't like any of that. We're going to issue a crackdown on all the substances used by pitchers to get a better grip on the ball. And uh, this crackdown, and I, I almost wanted to call it substance abuse, but that could just be taken out of context because it's not substance abuse. It's, I guess, substance usage. Um, the Ma- Major League Baseball has issued a list or, or, or an announcement to every single one of the teams in terms of players who have been caught using the illegal substance and who need, need to not do it anymore and the, the penalties that are going to be in place if they get caught doing it. Uh, and those new, new changes, these rule changes will be taking uh, effect on the 21st of June. But this rule change has already had its first casualty in Tyler Glass now, who tore his UCL, and he attributes his injury in part to the new changes. Take a listen. Convenient, and like, but I 100% believe that contributed to me getting hurt. Uh, no doubt, without a doubt. Um, I think like it's it's ridiculous. I'm just gonna. I have used sticky stuff before. It's ridiculous that like it seems like this whole public perception of like. Oh, it's just like select few people. Like your favorite pitcher probably 50 years ago was using something too. Like if you felt these balls, how inconsistent they were, like you have to use something. So in the past, I, my 
like substance of choice is sunscreen and rosin. Like just nothing egregious, something to where I can get a grip on the ball so it doesn't feel dusty. But two starts ago against the Nationals, I went cold turkey, nothing. And before that start, I remember when all this stuff came out, I was talking to people and talking to doctors. And they were like, the thing that maybe MLB doesn't realize or that players don't realize is like, what, what is the injury? Like, what, what is the prevention of like, maybe it'll add to injuries. And in my mind, I was like, that sounds dumb. That sounds like an excuse a player would use to make sure he can use sticky stuff. But I threw to the Nationals with nothing. I've never been – I don't use sticky stuff. to. I don't use spider tack. I don't need more spin. I, I have huge hands. I spin the ball fine. I want grip. I did well against the Nationals, probably one of the best starts I had all year. I woke up the next day and was like, I am sore in places that I didn't even know I had muscles in. Like, I felt completely different. I switched my fastball grip and my curveball grip. I've thrown it the same way for however many years I've played baseball. I had to change, I had to put my fastball deeper into my hand and grip it way harder. And I had to, instead of holding my curveball at the tip of my fingers, I had to dig it deeper into my hand. So I'm like choking that all my pitches. Like I said, I was like, maybe it's not going to, I don't think it'll lead to any injuries, but waking up after that start, I was like, okay, this sucks. Something is, is weird here. And then that same feeling is persisting all week long. And then I go into my start yesterday and that same feeling just, it pops or whatever the hell happened to my elbow. Like I feel it something happens. Whether you want us to not use sticky stuff or not is, is, is fine. Fine. Do it in the off season. Give us a chance to adjust to it. But I just threw 80 something, 70, whatever innings. And then you just told me I can't use anything in the middle of the year. I had to change everything I've been doing the entire season, everything out of the window. I have to start doing something completely new. And then I'm telling you, I truly believe that's why I got hurt. Me throwing a hundred and being six, seven is why I got hurt, but that contributed. And so I'm, I'm just frustrated that, like, they don't understand how hard it is to pitch one, but to tell us to do something completely different in the middle of a season is insane. I just don't it's, – it's ridiculous. There has to be some give and take here. You can't just take away everything and not add something. That rant was about maybe three or four minutes long. I, I try to chop it up as best as I can to convey the point across and be, you know, efficient with the time. But essentially, Glasnow is saying, hey, look, I – Look, I'm 6'7", I throw 100 mile per hour, that definitely played a part in my injury, but the change in his routine, class now is arguing, is what was eventually the switch that got him to tear his UCL. And for him to target the specifics of the rule changes and say, hey, look, this should not be done in the middle of the season, I think he has a legitimate gripe in that. I definitely think that the... MLB should have withheld making these changes until the end of the season where pitchers could get used to the new ball because Major League Baseball baseball keeps saying, hey, look, we're going to find a better ball that is a nice equilibrium for both sides. It would give the pitchers a chance to change the routine, what they need to do to throw effectively. I agree with Glass now in that sense. And it's also a, a factor in which cheating is kind of part of the identity of baseball, unfortunately. Cheating has been a part of baseball ever since, you know, the, the sport was invented. And, you know, there's a lot of unwritten rules in gray areas as well. Because now, you know, pitchers can't use spider tack. Uh, whether they use sunscreen or rosin, rosin, however you say it, is up in the air, but... Catchers are allowed to use that stuff, but they can't use it to throw the ball back to the pitcher. They have to use it specifically for grip to throw to first or second base. There's a lot of like great areas when it, and unwritten rules and the stretching of the rules when it comes to baseball in terms of what is allowed and what is not allowed. Everybody cheats in some aspect. It's just the big offenses that get caught and punished, a.k.a. banging on trash cans and stealing signs. 
everybody in baseball cheats to some degree, or at least there is at least one person on the roster that does cheat in some kind of way. That's just kind of part of the identity of the sport, and most diehard baseball fans will tell you that. But I do think that Glasnow has an important and I think and I think legitimate gripe in terms of saying, hey, this should have been done in the offseason. Before I, uh, before I wanted to talk about this today, I, I asked my friend Josh, uh, Josh Prevost, who was a pitcher for the Mets. He was a minor league pitcher in the Mets farm system for a couple years. He was drafted uh, in the fifth round by the Mets. He played a couple years. He had to retire due to uh, medical injury on his throwing arm. Basically, the rehab would have been too long, and he wouldn't have been able to pitch the same way again, so he decided to hang it up and retire. Uh, but Josh played in the Mets farm system for a couple of years, and I wanted his take on this specifically because um, very much like last now, Josh is very, very tall, uh, 6'7". He threw hard. Very similar in terms of you know the, ty- the type of player and the type of pitcher that they were. And I asked him his opinion on this, and, you know, this is essentially what he said. He said to me, you know, there's a lot to break down for Glasnow. Uh, for Glasnow to be able to pinpoint the cause of the injury, and, and especially one as common as a partial UCL tear, in order for him to pinpoint the, cha- or pinpoint the change of routine as what got him hurt is a bit of a stretch, uh, according to uh, my my buddy Josh, who was, again, in the minor league farm system for the Mets for a couple of years, essentially said, look, Glasnow isn't a doctor, and the cause for partial tears of the UCL, which is what Glasnow is suffering with, is often due to chronic fatigue over time, which recently, if you point to it, Glasnow has been throwing more pitches than normal for the Rays, who the Rays typically have a short leash when it comes to uh, their starting pitching anyways. Essentially, Josh said, you know, if the UCL completely snapped, then maybe he would have a case in terms of saying, hey, look, this change of routine is what made my UCL tear and this this rule change is is to blame for my injury. But because it's a partial tear, his elbow could have been partially torn for years without him even really knowing it. And it's just a change in routine that kind of amplified that. He also I asked him. I also asked him about spider tack. And uh, what he said, and he said, as for the sticky substance, he didn't really get specific there. He said, I never used anything forbidden, but I knew plenty of guys who did. You spray sunscreen in a rosin bag, turns into super glue, basically, and, you know, both those substances are allowed. But at the end of it all, Josh basically said, what I'm saying is a routine change that small wouldn't be the cause of the injury, in his opinion. He is a professional athlete. Their job is to deal with adversity and adjust routines on the fly. So regardless of not the change in routine is truly the cause of Glasnow's injury, I think the important takeaway here is maybe that this change shouldn't have been done in the middle of the season. And you could definitely echo Glasnow's sentiment in saying, look, I don't want this to happen to other guys like it happened to me. But to pinpoint the the, the routine change as what caused the injuries might be a little bit of a stretch. Uh, and that, and I agree with Josh's, not, not just because, you know, he's a buddy of mine, but I agree with his assessment of the situation. And unfortunately for not only the race, but for Glassnow, he he's been having an incredible season, but he's going to have to spend the rest of it. Most, mostly, most likely, excuse me, uh, in the dugout 
It took two weeks, ladies and gentlemen, two weeks for Brad Stevens, the new president of basketball operations for the Boston Celtics. Took him two weeks to make his first official move as an executive of the team after being its head coach. And in this move, he traded away Kemba Walker and the Celtics first round pick in the upcoming draft to the Oklahoma City Thunder for uh Moses Brown, Al Horford, and the Oklahoma City Thunder's 2023 second round pick. And a lot of people are saying that this trade was horrible for Boston and that Brad Stevens did a really bad job. They don't understand why Kemba Walker is going and a first round pick is going. And realistically speaking, the reason why people don't like this trade for Boston is no offense, they don't understand the quality and the level of the pieces that are in play for both teams here, specifically on the Boston side, because realistically speaking, the Oklahoma City Thunder are not trading for Kemba Walker. You know, Kemba Walker is the toy that you get in your Happy Meal from McDonald's. They are trading for the first round pick, which is the incentive, because the reality is, is that Kemba Walker is more likely than not, not going to play one game in an Oklahoma City Thunder jersey. And we'll get to that in a little bit here, but I wanted to start focusing first on the Celtics side of things, because as I said, a lot of people don't understand the level of the pieces that are in play here and why Boston is making this trade. And a lot of people didn't even know that you could make a trade at this time, Uh, but you can. You can make a trade when you're eliminated from the playoffs, or even if you don't make the playoffs, you can make a trade. It's just a lot of teams don't do it because they like to see how things play out in the playoffs before they start making their moves. I said two weeks ago when Brad Stevens got pushed into the president of basketball operations role for the retiring Danny H. I said that this hiring was genius. I said it was incredibly smart, not only for the fact that you get to keep Brad Stevens within the organization, because the reality is, is that whoever the general manager that was going to come in probably would have fired Brad Stevens based on the season that he had in Boston. So not only do you get to keep Brad Stevens within the organization, you don't have to go and see him coach either in college or for another professional basketball team. You get to keep him in the franchise, in the organization, and Brad Stevens knows that roster better than anybody else in the building. Brad Stevens knows that roster. He knows the players that are on it. He understands what they need and where they need to go. And because of that, Brad Stevens knew that Kemba Walker's days in Boston were numbered. Brad Stevens knew that Kemba Walker needed to be moved. And I think Kemba Walker even subconsciously knew that he needed to get out of Boston. You could see the unhappiness and the frustration that he had when the Boston Celtics were eliminated from the playoffs. He said, he's just got to fix it. He's got to fix things about his games. Obviously, he's very um, unhappy about uh, his knees and the injuries that he sustained in Boston. And overall, you know, Kemba Walker's time in Boston was coming to an end, I think, anyways. And it was really just an unfortunate run for him for him and the Celtics. In his two years in Boston, Kemba played 99 games, averaging 20 points, 5 assists, 4 rebounds, 1 steal, and 42% shooting. Now, obviously, stats don't tell the entire story. Because if you look at his stats when he was in Charlotte, they're actually pretty similar. But his consistency, and to be quite honest with you, I think... You know, that's his Achilles heel as a basketball player is the fact that offensively speaking, he's not that consistent to begin with, but his consistency as a basketball player and his ability to stay healthy, both 
tanked tremendously in his time in Boston. It was time to move on for Kemba Walker and especially the Celtics, which signed, you know, Kemba to a massive, massive contract, kind of as a panic signing to replace Kyrie Irving, who said, oh, hey, I actually don't want to play here anymore. Uh, and, you know, Kemba Walker, even though he's a little bit smaller than Kyrie is, he does check a lot of the same boxes that Kyrie did. So it made sense from a basketball standpoint to move Kemba Walker in. And on paper, it looked like that, you know, that team would have been really, really good with Kemba. He just did not stay healthy. His knees are deteriorating and it's taking a toll on his body. And again, the inconsistency offensively and his inability to stay healthy is what expedited his exit from Boston. Kemba missed more games in the past two seasons in Boston than he had missed in his entire career up until that point. So, not only is the the offloading of Kemba Walker going to give up, or give rather, Boston about $14 million in cap space, if I remember correctly, to make some additional moves to try and fix that roster, you are getting rid of, and I, I don't want to use the term getting rid of because that seems so harsh, but you are, let's, let's say moving, you're moving a player that... Uh, you knew was not going to be a good fit for the roster. And again, you are moving that first round pick as well, because not only is OKC going to initially take on that contract, but they're going to take on a player that they know is not going to play more than likely a single game in an Oklahoma City uniform. And if Kemba Walker does play any games in an Oklahoma City uniform, it's purely to raise up his trade value so Sam Pressy, the general manager of the Oklahoma City Thunder, can move him and get more first-round picks, which Oklahoma City might own every first-round pick in the draft at some point over the next three years because they are hoarding first-round picks. So when you say, oh, I don't understand why Kemba and a first rounder is going to Oklahoma City for a 35, 36-year-old center in Al Horford and Moses Brown, uh, that's why. It's the fact that Kemba is a little injury prone right now. He's got a ginormous contract, and Oklahoma City is probably not going to play many games. He's not a long-term asset. So the first round pick really is sweetener for the Oklahoma City to incentivize taking on Kemba Walker and then moving him one year later, which Oklahoma City has been that place for a couple of years now. Think about what Chris Paul did. He came in, led that team to the playoffs in the bubble one year, moved on to Phoenix, and now they're in the Western Conference Finals. So what this means for you know Oklahoma City is the fact that, hey, Sam Presti is, you know, round of applause for Sam Presti for getting all these first round picks. This, even though it's been a rough going for Oklahoma City recently, ever since Westbrook left, ever since Durant left, he's done a really good job at slowly but surely accumulating draft picks to where, hey, they're going to have so many first-round picks over the next five years that it's almost a sim similar situation to what Boston was in, where they're going to have so many picks, they're going to have a lot of picks to um, you know, build their team around. Future is really bright in OKC, and you have the potential of getting even more picks from Kemba Walker for dealing Kemba Walker, whether that's this offseason or next offseason. And you so you say, well, it sucks to let go of Al Horford. Al Horford was not playing significant minutes in OKC after being traded from Philadelphia. He was not being utilized by OKC. It makes sense for him for them to move on. Obviously, the one that probably stings, and and Moses Brown is a name that you might not know off the top of your head, but OKC fans seem to really love the guy. So 
he's going to be a valuable addition for Boston. Boston is going to bring in Alf or Al Horford, who does have offensive capabilities, and he is going to strengthen up the interior defense, which was Boston's probably weakest aspect as a basketball team. The past season was their interior defense. And, you know, Al Horford has had three seasons. I think he had three or four seasons with Boston, with Brad Stevens. So he's going to be returning home to a team that he knows very well. It's a great fit for Boston initially. It frees up about $14 million in cap space for them to go and you know find somebody else to fill the holes that are currently in the Boston Celtics roster. And realistically speaking, you know, Sam Presti has had himself set up to have more picks in the first round of the subsequent drafts. And the, the Oklahoma City Thunder, if they draft well, and that's a big if, if they draft well in a draft class that actually appears to be pretty good this upcoming season. I know I said I was skeptical, skeptical about how good this draft class was going to be in the past. Watch out for OKC. So it accomplished a lot for Boston. Boston got a great centerpiece, probably a starting center in Al Horford, who can shoot the basketball somewhat efficiently. Great interior defense, which he's going to be a big help for Boston moving forward. Boston got another young player that they can be excited about. They moved on from a player that was having a stranglehold in terms of money capabilities, in terms of the contract, and they freed up some cap space. And sure, they had to give away that first round pick in order to do it, but they had to do it because OKC is more than likely not going to play a single game with Kemba Walker on the roster. They're going to either have to move him to another team in which, hey, nobody really wants Kemba Walker's contract and nobody wants to deal with the injury proneness that is Kemba Walker right now. So even if he does play a game in an OKC uniform, it's purely to raise his trade value. He's not going to stay more than one season in OKC. And that's why that first round pick was included. Both teams got both teams accomplished exactly what they needed to in this trade. Kudos to Brad Stevens for understanding what his roster needs to move on from and for getting some good players in return that can help Boston building a team moving forward. And kudos to Sam Presti for once again bringing in it being a good dealer for getting potentially another first round pick, another couple of first round picks, depending on what they do with Kemba Walker and trading away pieces in Al Horford and Moses Brown that they weren't necessarily fully using to the best of their capabilities. So both teams won this trade, in my opinion, and I don't see any reason why Boston lost this trade like people are saying that they have. And that's the end of the episode today. Thank you all so much for listening to episode number 47 of Hardheaded Sports. My name is Nick Ryan. And with all that being said, stay hard-headed, but have a nice day.